Oh, yeah. Welcome back. This is the Passball Show right here on EMTR Radio Network. Reminding you that if you want to tune into the program, be part of the whole thing, just uh, tweet at me. And my Twitter handle is John underscore P-L-E. That's J-O-H-N underscore P-I-E-L-L-I. And I promise I will reply to every mention that, that that's made over the course of the show. We're going to keep this thing all interactive. And, uh, you know, obviously the way the way that, let's be honest, it has to be. I mean, we, we got interactive programming. Yeah, of course, you join me um, either in, in um, either over the phone or um, in person on Thursdays from 5 to 7, where at least on an every other week basis, I'll be over at the Hooters in Princeton doing an evening drive with Chris Alley. And I've said something that I believe is revolutionary in the whole communications world, that how, how often do you get to be part of a live show where you're sitting there to broadcast and live, yeah, you get to hear everything they say, and if you want to be part of it, all you got to do is just go up and grab a seat, and you got the microphone for a minute. I mean, that's, that, that, that's something that I think, I think you know, a lot of people will be willing to take me up on the offer. And when I'm over at the Hooters, and it, it'll be next week, and I, I believe I'm trying to get the date squared away. Uh, the 23rd of May will be the next time I'll be down there. Um, and you, you want to jump in and be part of the program, all you got to do is just grab a seat. I'll give you a minute to say whatever, whatever you want, sports-related. Obviously, I'm controlling the board, so if you want to say anything profane or you know you want to want to play a joke or something, you won't be on very long. But, uh, you know, jump in there. You know, you want to talk about Charlie Manuel. You want to talk about the Mets. You want to talk about, uh, you know, anything. Hockey, baseball, football, basketball. Uh, you know, we'll get you up there for a minute or so. So uh, Hooters in Princeton, New Jersey, 400 Mercer Mall, right off of Route 1, where I'll be on the 23rd of May. And uh, usually about every other week after that. So, you know, with the evening drive, everything going on, MTR Radio Network, the new, uh, you, got, you pretty much got stuff going on from 3 to 5 and 5 to 7. Every day during the week, you know, the afternoon rush, the evening drive, uh, getting you ready for the, the sports programs and the stuff going on um, every night during the week. You got David Dobin at 10 to 12 every night pretty much recapping everything that just happened and let's be honest you're in sports you, you're always seeing things going on and, and you want to go out there and vent to it um, that's when you get a chance to call in 609-910-0687 obviously not to the pass ball show because we're, we're, we're not live right now but um, you know feel free to at me you know on twitter john underscore pl all you got to do is just pop that in whether you follow me or not send send me a mention like i said i'll be following throughout throughout the the duration of my programming broadcast and i'll reply to every single mention that's made over anything that's going on in relation to the past ball show right here on emtr radio network so Gonna, gonna, gonna just finish up my talk about the Yankees before we get into a couple historical things. We recap bases empty blog, which, which is uh, you know obviously something phenomenal that uh, that 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 I get I get into just about every week, and and I think it's I think it's it's something fun. It's been it's been enjoyable, um, you know every every week to get to just kind of jump into something when it comes to uh, history and stuff going on in Major League Baseball. But really, my uh, my whole uh, finishing up. Uh, my Yankee talk is that, yes, the Yankees are going to have a roster crunch probably later rather than sooner. It's not like all these players are coming back today. But once that happens, once you have the crunch, um, there's going to be players that are playing well. They're not going to have jobs when the New York Yankees and whether the Yankees go the trade route, whether they try to outright them to the minors, which is probably going to be impossible to do. You know, I think it's something that's unfortunate. It's something that's going to be very difficult to be able to do on a regular basis. And I think that 
it's something that we have to look at. Um, you know, here as as whether you're a Yankee fan or just a baseball guy, and understand that the guys that you've loved, whether it's a Lyle Overbay or somebody else, maybe even a Travis Hafner, uh, you know, or a Vernon Wells, you may have to say goodbye to them before the team reaches the postseason. And I think that if you want to make a judgment over what you've seen early in this season, and you know, similarly to the way you say, hey, the Phillies' bad start is going to lead to a bad season, that the Yankees' good start with all the adversity that they've faced with all these injuries, it's probably going to lead to a good season. And I do see the Yankees at this point in the postseason. I had a hard time seeing it. You know, no Jeter, no A-Rod. The team's getting older. I I saw things finally catching up to the New York Yankees this year, and they've proved me wrong. And I'll eat some crow on it. I mean, if they're back in the postseason like they've been for just about every year since 1995, then they deserve to be. So you give them credit, and they've done a phenomenal job. And, you know, for, for their sake, I hope they keep up the good work. But it will take a little bit of a transition. Some of these players are going to fade a little bit because they're not capable of doing what they've been doing on a consistent basis for an entire season. So once that happens, it'll be time for some of the regulars to come back. And if that doesn't, if they don't come back or they're not up to the level that they've been over the past several seasons, the Yankees could be in for a little bit of a disappointment. But to this point, the Yankees are really one of the better stories in Major League Baseball. And, you know, you look at really what has happened with the Yankees and the amount of money they spend and everything. Let's take a second to give them credit for what they've done without really going out there and spending money. Yes, they they took a lot more money on Vernon Wells' contract for this year as opposed to next year. We understand that. Lyle Overbay, he's kind of a cheap pickup. Travis Hafner's kind of a cheap pickup. And yes, they haven't gotten a lot out of guys like Francisco and Brendan Bosch. But listen, you're not you're not going to roll a seven every single time. And the Yankees, to what they've gotten at this point, you got to be pretty friggin' happy. And it's it's something exciting as a baseball fan to look at. And, and usually, you know, the unsung heroes are the teams that that don't spend any money. Uh, whether whether the Baltimore Orioles, who you know have traditionally over the last several years not spent as much money as they did in the '90s and prior to that. You know, in the Ripken days, you got the Oakland Athletics who spent nothing, had the lowest payroll uh, of any team in Major League Baseball and went out there and made the playoffs last year. Those are usually the good stories. Those are usually the ones that get you all excited and all kind of warm and fuzzy and give you that great feeling. But this year, the Yankees kind of do that. And unless you hate the Yankees, which, you know, there's a good good amount of the population of baseball fans that hate the Yankees, you would never want to give them credit even if they did everything perfect. But this year, you should give them a little bit of credit because they've done more with less than they have done probably since the 1980s. And, and, that, and, that, and that's a great, a great job by the manager, Joe Girardi. Uh, here's a guy that, listen, whenever the Yankees lose a couple games, if the Yankees get bumped from a playoff series, uh, Yankee fans go for this guy's head. And here's a guy that has shown that he can do not just with good players, not just with great players, but with the players that he's given, he can get the most out of them. He has proven to me that he is a better big league manager than he gets credit for. And another guy who does deserve some credit as well uh, managed the Boston Red Sox, the two World Series championships. And a lot of people said that it, that, that, that it was kind of handed to him. And that's Terry Francona. Terry Francona is over with the Cleveland Indians now, getting them to perform to where I expected them to be. I had the Indians in the postseason as a wild card team this year, as well as the Kansas City Royals. But Terry Francona, once again, 
has shown that he has a pulse, that he can dictate what goes on with his players. He can get the most out of the players that he's got. And, and they're not all big acquisitions. Yes, they acquired, they signed Nick Swisher and Michael Bourne. Yes, they got Mark Reynolds, who I thought they got him on a very cheap price as a free agent when he was non-tendered by the Baltimore Orioles. All that being said, he has gotten a lot out of his pitching. Justin Matherson, Masterson has become an ace. Zach McAllister has helped out. Scott Kazmir, uh, you know, a, a guy who was out of baseball, you know, within the last year or so is back making a comeback and making quality starts for the Cleveland Indians. Chris Perez, the closer, who, who was, was kind of on his way out last year with some of his comments about the lack of support from the fans and, and a bunch of other things he had to say, is anchoring a good bullpen. And Terry Francona is a, is a manager that a lot of people say is only going to get credit for being a good manager because of his two World Series. But listen, you have to go out there and win them. I think people fail to look at that aspect, that the fact that Terry Francona uh, did something in Boston that wasn't done in 86 years. He won a World Series. You know, you remember all the years of Ted Williams being there. And you know how much I love Ted Williams. That the fact that they, they only made the world, they only won a pennant once in 1946 when they lost to the St. Louis Cardinals. The fact that they that they went through all those years with Carl Yastrzemski and the great players that were involved in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s. Nothing. And Terry Francona in his first year as manager, along with Theo Epstein, who was there as his first year as a general manager. And the Red Sox won the World Series. Not only that, but they did it in such dramatic fashion as they were down 3 nothing in the New York Yankees. When it losing game three, 19 to seven, and they go out there and they win the, the series. The first team in Major League history to be down three games to nothing in a series and go out there and win. Not only did they finally win a World Series, but they put an exclamation mark on it. Phenomenal job. And they go out there and they duplicate it in 2007 with, yes, a slightly different team. Mike Lowell, Josh Beckett, uh, Daisuke Matsuzaka, a couple, couple players that they brought in to kind of add to what they had. And they win another World Series. Terry Francona built his resume as a manager through those two World Series. I understand that. And if you look at his overall record over his time in Boston, his record was very good. He earned himself another job. But a lot of times what happens with managers that have a little bit of success in a certain place is they get that second job and they're not able to back it up. And you see that, all right, maybe they were just a beneficiary of the talent that they had at the job that they had before. And listen, there's plenty of managers that fit that build. But you know what, though? There's also plenty of managers that are born winners. And a guy like Buck Showalter for what he was able to do with the Yankees. And then he duplicated it in Arizona. He made the Rangers a little bit better. I'm not going to give him 100% credit. I think Ron Washington has done more for the Texas Rangers than Buck Showalter did. But look at what he did in Baltimore. You know, when, when managers do it on a, on a year-in and year-out basis in a couple different stops, they start to get that respect that they deserve as a manager. And Terry Francona with the Cleveland Indians is on his way right now. And you, you look at other managers in the game, and we, we've talked about it before. Uh, some managers, listen, they, they 
took a little bit of success they had. They took a little bit of, of the success that they were given to before they took the job. You know, sometimes a Bob Brenly comes along. And I've said all along that this guy won a World Series. Why isn't he a manager again? But he, he won a World Series with Buck Walter's team. A couple of years later, he was out. He hasn't managed again. Joe Torre. You could debate whether you want, whether he's a Hall of Fame player or a Hall of Fame manager. I think he had borderline, you know, it was borderline in both cases. You know, a National League MVP. He was one of the best players in the game in the 60s and 70s. But Joe Torre grabs the Buck Showalter team in 1996, wins a World Series then, then wins three straight through 98 to 2000. And then, and then he, he's consistently in the playoffs every year, finishes off with a phenomenal, phenomenal record as a Yankee manager. Am I going to say that Joe Torre was as good of a manager as Casey Stengel was with the Yankees? Or as good of a manager as Joe McCarthy? Eh, it's, hard, it's hard to say it because let's just be honest, it's easier to make the playoffs than it was when they were managing. And if you look back at what Joe McCarthy did and what Casey Stengel did when he was with the Yankees, and I'm going to keep saying that because Casey Stengel managing, uh, whether it was the Brook- the Brooklyn team or the the New York Mets, any any other spot that he was in other than the New York Yankees, he was not a very good manager. But what they were able to do on a year in and year out basis by winning consecutive pennants, looking at the Dodger teams. And I've spent a lot of time talking about, you know, the 47 Dodgers, the 49, 51, 52, 55, and 56 Dodgers. The fact that they were able to win those six NL pennants and one World Series in 10 years was a remarkable, remarkable run. And for the New York Yankees, I understand they had an advantage when it came to talent. But I don't care if if there's eight teams or two teams in your league the fact that you're able to go out there and win a league pennant every single year just about and what the Yankees that's what the Yankees essentially did they won that World Series in 32 and then they go on to run from 36 to 39 they take a year off in 40 when the the Reds beat the uh, the Oakland I'm sorry the Philadelphia Athletics but they they win the World Series in 41 42, they win the AL pennant, but they lose to the St. Louis Cardinals. Uh, 43, they win the World Series over the St. Louis Cardinals. 44, of course, you know that was the uh, that that was the All St. Louis World Series with the with the, the Cardinals beating the Browns. And then you, they all start, you know, you have the Joe McCarthy run coming to an end by by 1946. Bucky Harris wins a World Series with them in 47 against the Dodgers, and then they're back with the Stengel years of 49. 50, 51, 52, 53, where they win the World Series all those years. The 54 Giants beat the Indians, and then it's the Yankees again in 55, winning the pennant but losing to the Dodgers. They won they won the World Series against the Dodgers in 56, and then they were back winning another pennant in 57, losing to the Milwaukee Braves. And then in 58, they win the World Series over the Braves. And then obviously, 59 didn't work out for him. That was the year the Dodgers beat the White Sox, and the White Sox returned to the World Series for the first time since 1919. And then you go into 1960, which becomes Casey Stengel's last season, unfortunately. Uh, they, they, they're heavily favored against the Pittsburgh Pirates. They dominate them in the series. They lose three close games, and then they, get, they blow out the Pirates in the other three games, going to a Game 7, and you never know what could happen in Game 7. And you think about Forbes Field, ninth inning, tie game, Bill Mazeroski, 
and that kind of ends the run of the New York Yankees. But the, in my opinion, you're looking really at two two distinct histories of things that can't be duplicated now because of the way Major League Baseball has changed. And the fact that not only are, are there more than one team winning, a, you know, winning, getting to the postseason in each league, it's three divisions, not just two divisions, but three divisions. So six teams are making the playoffs automatically. And you add the two wildcard teams in each league, 10 teams have a chance to win a World Series after the regular season ends. And before that, it was just one in each league. I mean, and I think that's kind of crazy. You know, instead of one, instead of two teams, there's ten. Instead of one team in each league, there's five. And you've seen there's been wild card teams that have won World Series before. Within the new format, unfortunately, you know, there wasn't one of the teams that won the play-in game, whether, whether it was Baltimore or whether it was St. Louis. Unfortunately, they didn't make the World Series this past year, but it's going to happen. You're going to get a team that wins that game and takes the first series and ends up winning a pennant. And once they win a pennant, they have a chance to win a World Series. You look at all the wildcard teams that have won the World Series. Most recently with the St. Louis Cardinals in 2011. You know, the, the Florida Marlins come to mind. The two years that they won the wild card and end up making, uh, you know, winning the World Series. You couldn't do that prior to 1969. Before that season, you couldn't do it. Because it was just one team winning a whole league. And it wasn't until expansion happens, of course. You know, remember the expansion teams of uh, 61 and 62? And the American League first, of course, with the Angels. And, and uh, the new Washington Senator team with the, with the Washington Senator team going to Minnesota. And then in 62, of course, with the Mets and the Astros. It went from eight to ten teams in each league. So you got one, divi- one pennant winner out of ten teams going to the postseason. And nobody else. And it stayed through until 1968 and, of course, 1969 with the new expansion and the, uh, the, the new divisions. But I tell you, it was tougher. And, 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 I, and, I, and I don't think the modern day, the new, the new life, the young baseball fan understands how big of a deal it was to win a pennant then. I mean, you had teams that won one pennant in 40 years and they would sit there and think it was the greatest thing in the world. And would sit on that like the New York Ranger fans look at their 1994 Stanley Cup. Like it's the greatest thing in the world. Like they're the greatest team because they won that one year. Uh, Pennants in Major League Baseball used to be a bigger deal. And and that's why they had the banners hanging up in the stadiums. For for pennants. Pennants in World Series. They were a big deal. Nobody cares about the, the little banner that hangs up there because you won the wild card in 1999 and 2000. Nobody cares about that anymore. But it's a postseason appearance. And once you make the postseason, anything can happen. Just ask the New York Mets of those two teams, those two two years. They won the wild card and made it to the NLCS in 1999. They won the wild card and made it to the World Series and won a pennant in 2000 because they were a wild card team. You know, those are interesting things to think about because, you know, you as a baseball fan now – can root for a team and have them have so many different avenues and possibilities to make the postseason. Prior to 1969, that wasn't the case. And that's why guys like Casey Stengel and Joe McCarthy and some, some of those Cardinal teams that were managed by guys like Red Shandies and uh, you know, other, other managers that were there before deserve so much credit for their ability to continuously get back in the postseason. Leo DeRocher, Burt Schotten, 
Walter Alston with the Dodgers. I mean, to continuously get back to the World Series was a phenomenal feat. But lots more stuff going on. Passball Show MTR Radio Network. This is John Pielli. We're going to take our first break of this part of the program. Be back with a little more after. back. This is John Pielli. I'm the MTR Radio Network hosting, of course, the Pass Ball Show. And, uh, you know, got, got, a, got a course of, uh, got a hold of a couple different things here, and I thought it was pretty interesting. But we're going to move on. I'm going to get into some possibilities when it comes to a trade for the New York Mets. And really, what, what, we, what we're talking about here, and unfortunately, a lot of fans get into this, say, hey, your team isn't good. You got to trade players for the future. The New York Mets of the early 1980s under Frank Cashin made a bold move in 1983. And they went out there and they acquired Keith Hernandez when the team wasn't very good. And the Mets are in need of a move like that. And, and I'm going to spend time thinking and try to think outside of the box of certain players that maybe could become expendable for the right price, that if the Mets made a trade with, this could be the guy to be the position player that your team is built around. Right now, I think there are a couple options out there to solve problems in the Mets outfield. And not just for this year, but for the future. And you've got to look at what's going on out there what's in center field and in right field. And with Ike Davis performing at the level that he is... The Mets are essentially sending four pitchers out there to bat. They have a ninth spot where the pitcher is batting. They have the eighth spot where their center fielder is batting. They have the seventh spot where their right fielder is batting. And they have the cleanup spot right now where Ike Davis is batting. And there's four automatic outs in a lineup at a nine spots. How do you expect to generate any offense when that's the case on a day-in and day-out basis? So now it's time, instead of to complain about it, to come up with some solutions. The one solution that we talked about in the first hour was sending Ike Davis down to AAA Las Vegas. Let him work out his kinks there, become a better hitter, and come back when he's ready and bring up either Zach Lutz or Josh Satin. And what the Mets can do is bat either Lutz or Satin in a 7 or 8 spot at a batting order, and what they'll probably get is more production than they were getting from Ike Davis to this point this season. The next one is to make two trades. And, I, and, I, and I've been interested in seeing, in seeing the possibilities of the Mets to bring in a player like a Carlos Gonzalez. But that's not going to happen right now. That's something that you're going to need to kind of uh, wait maybe till the trading deadline when more general managers are interacting and talking with each other or the offseason when, when you're thinking about adding that impact type of player. So I say you wait on a trade like that because right now I don't think, I don't think the Mets know what they have in their system and the value of it. I think they'll have more value as the season goes on. But, uh, but there was a player that was up here over the last week or so that intrigues me a little bit, and I'll tell you why. Alex Rios 
of the Chicago White Sox is a guy that, of course, has been known for being one of part of one of two of the worst contracts ever given to players. And those two contracts were given by now Mets assistant general manager and former general manager of the Toronto Blue Jays, J.P. Ricciardi. Hey, another fit right there, right? Alex Rios has done a good job. He is he has really kind of come back from being a guy that just was a big bust to a productive player. And if you look at what Alex Rios is as a player, you realize that he's a guy who combines some power with some speed. Last year, he had 304, 25 home runs, 91 runs batted in, 23 stolen bases, 37 doubles, and 8 triples. Now, those numbers are going to cost you a little bit. You're not going to be able to get him for nothing. Alex Rios this season, sitting 279, 8 homers, 20 runs batted in, with 8 doubles. Thinks just 6 stolen bases, but he's a guy that can run. Plays good defense in the outfield. Is gonna If he joined the Mets, he would go right into the middle of the order, whether it's 5th, 6th, maybe even 4th. He's a guy that's going to be a is uh, going to be able to produce. You got to be happy with that if you're the New York Mets. And looking at it like this, what does it cost? That's the obvious thing. I'm not going to ever propose a trade. I'm not going to propose a WFAN mong trade. I'm not going to say give up nothing for something. I'm always going to say you have to give up something to get something. And Alex Rios is going to cost you. The perfect thing that I see here to work out if you're the New York Mets might be to finally part ways with Jordani Valdespin. And Met fans are up in arms for hearing that. How could you suggest that the Mets trade Jordani Valdespin? He had six pinch hit home runs last year. He had a walk-off grand slam this year. He's got that excitement, exuberance, that energy. All that stuff that New York Met fans really like to see. You don't get to see it anymore because Jose Reyes isn't around. But Jordani Valdespin is that kind of guy. Let's be honest. Jordani Valdespin is on his way out. A lot of it has to do with his attitude. The way his teammates perceive him. The way management perceives him. And the way the opposition perceives him. I mean, the example the other day where, where he hits a home run down 7-1 in the ninth inning and stares at it and shows up the Pittsburgh Pirates. And then the next day he gets drilled. And, you know, you would figure that the Mets are going to go out there and start a big brawl over this. The, the Mets have had it with his act. And there's only one thing to do from this point, and that's get rid of him. And the good thing about getting rid of Jordani Valdespin at this point is that his value is actually fairly high. You're going to be able to trade him, maybe not to the level of an R.A. Dickey when R.A. Dickey was traded from the Mets to the Blue Jays and the Mets got Travis Darno, Noah Syndergaard, Wilmer Brutera, and John Buck for him. Maybe not at that level. But he, is, he can be a centerpiece of a trade right now. And the Chicago White Sox don't have an everyday second baseman. They have a situation at third where they're not really happy with Connor Gillespie and Jeff Kepinger. They would like another infielder. Jordani Valdez being, if he was traded to the Chicago White Sox, would go out there and probably play almost every day. And yes, if he's vulnerable against lefties, a guy will ca- he'll have somebody caddy him, whether it's a Gordon Beckham, whether it's a Connor Gillespie. 
and he will at, very, at the very least play every day against right-handed pitchers. The Mets don't want to do that. Number one, because he's not an outfielder. And the only spot that the Mets have open is in either center or right field. So that all being said, Jordani Valdespin as a centerpiece of a trade for Alex Rios works for both sides. Now, obviously, if you're in a New York Mets, you're going to have to give up more because that's not enough. That's not enough to trade Jordani Valdespin straight up for Alex Rios. But what will happen and what could happen is you build on a trade like this. And this is where Mets fans who may may have understood Valdez being going for Rios will get mad at me again because it's going to be Valdez being plus you're going to have to trade I suggest a guy like Kirk Neuenheis who you could actually sell to the Chicago White Sox you could say here's a guy that plays some very good defense in the outfield he may have a chance to be an everyday player he's working on his strikeouts you know, we got him down in a minor league where he's playing every day and he's becoming less of a threat to strike out every single time up. But plays good defense. He's kind of a guy that maybe maybe is a poor man's left-hand hitting Alex Rios. He's got a little bit of power, a little bit of speed. He's kind of a gritty guy. You're going to like his presence in a clubhouse as a young player. And then if you also get Val speed in addition to him, you're kind of getting a little more than what you had in Alex Rios. And then they probably tell you that that isn't enough, but you're close. So that's when you go out there to your Binghamton ball club and you got a right-handed reliever by the name of Jeff Walters. He's 25 years old. He's throwing up zeros. He's 0-0 zero and zero with a 0-61 ERA in 13 games and 10 saves for the Binghamton Mets. And you know what? Let's be honest. From Mets fans' perspective, nobody's talking about this guy right now. And he's not necessarily a strikeout to inning pitch type of guy. He gets people out. He he draws to contact a lot. And this is why you take advantage of a guy that's having a good season. And you say, all right, well, maybe Jeff Walters could be part of the Chicago White Sox bullpen for the future. And you make that trade. You make that trade if you're in the New York Mets because you get yourself an everyday right fielder that's under contract next year for just $12 million. And let's be honest, if you were going to commit four years and $48 million to Michael Bourne, $12 million a season, you could commit another year of $12 million to Alex Rios. Can't you? I think you can. And that's one of the things that has to be looked at. You get Alex Rios for Valdespin, Neuenheis, and Jeff Walters. And that trade is done. The Mets have an outfielder. Now, listen, is the pressures of playing in New York going to get to Alex Rios? It could. It could turn out to be a bust. If he ends up giving you nothing this year and next year, like he's done a couple years throughout his career, yes, you look at that trade as not being good. But it's an upgrade, not just for the Mets now, but for the Mets when they're supposed to be good in 2014. And then you say, John, what do you do to solve center field? For the immediate future, I've said the problem with the New York Mets playing things the way they have by playing younger players that don't belong in the major leagues, guys who aren't even prospects, they're journeyman-type players like Andrew Brown and Juan Lagares. And even Rick Ankeel is you're taking the job away from players that should be in the major leagues and competing. And here is the perfect example. 
The Colorado Rockies have an outfield right now of Dexter Fowler in center field and Carlos, Go- uh, Carlos Gonzalez in left and Michael Kadire in right. Todd Helton's playing first base. One of their biggest performers last year was Tyler Colvin. He played center field. He played first base. He had a phenomenal year for those Colorado Rockies. He hit 290 with 18 home runs, 72 RBIs, 27 doubles, and 10 triples for the Colorado Rockies. And because the Mets insist on playing minor league journeyman-type players in their outfield, Tyler Colvin is playing in AAA Colorado Springs this season. His numbers there? 278, four homers, 15 RBIs. Obviously, the guy's upset because he knows he's a major league player. But the Colorado Rockies have too many players up right now. He has options, so he's down in AAA. It's time for the Mets to swing a deal for Tyler Colvin. Here's the deal I propose. Colvin to the New York Mets. He could play center field. He could play right. He could play first base. You're going to have to give up something to get him. And here's a guy that I propose, a guy who has less of a major league track record than Tyler Colvin and can go down to the minor leagues and work himself back to the majors like he's doing right now. And my friends, that's Colin Calgill. Colin Calgill, a very good spring, earned himself a spot on his team, had a grand slam on opening day. Met fans loved him. Since then, he gave you absolutely nothing, not only offensively, but defensively. Does it mean that Colin Calgill is not going to be a good major league player? No. And the Mets are still hoping that he becomes something, that he comes back, that he helps as a center fielder or a right fielder in some way, shape, or form. But Colin Calgill still right now has some has some value. He's a guy that the Arizona Diamondbacks two years ago thought the world of. Traded him, of course, to the Oakland Athletics in a trade that sent Trevor Cahill to the Arizona Diamondbacks. And now he's a Met. But the Mets have a chance to upgrade. Obviously, a Colvin for Calgill trade straight up doesn't work. So the Mets are going to have to give up something else. Once again, Mets fans, you're upset. Come on, I don't want to give up more than I'd want to give up. I don't want to give up a bag of baseballs and get good players. doesn't work that way. Jacob DeGrom is a guy that I saw pitch in Savannah last year. He's actually gotten himself up to, to Binghamton this year. He's made the jump from the South Atlantic League to the Florida State League. Now he's up there with the Binghamton Mets. Not off to the greatest start, but he has some very good stuff. He's a right-hander. He throws pretty well. Here's a guy that the Colorado Rockies could say, hey, this guy could be a triple-A by the end of this season. Could be up in our rotation to be part of the mix next season. Oh, yeah. And we got a guy that we think could probably be the equivalent of Tyler Colvin, a right-hand batter in Colin Calgill. And that's a trade that I do. That's a trade that I go out there and I say I do it if I'm both sides. And that's what happens when you make a trade. You've got to have a balance. Or even tilt something that you could say may not even be in your own favor to do a trade. But the Mets with an outfield of Tyler Colvin and Alex Rios and Lucas Duda. And let's be honest, Ankeel as a bench player 
is not bad. Jordani Valdespin is gone now. You use Ankiel maybe in that role. Mike Baxter, left-hand hitter off the bench, has been great this year. The team doesn't look that bad. And before I break here, I'll go over a lineup that would include those two guys. I, I, would, I would lead off Colvin in center field. Daniel Murphy at second base. I know it's two left-hand hitters, but who cares? David Wright batting third. Lucas Duda batting fourth. Alex Rios batting fifth. Ike Davis back from AAA batting sixth. John Buck and eventually Travis Darno batting seventh. And Ruben Tejada batting eighth. Not very bad. John Pielli, Passball Show and TR Radio Network. Back with a break. We're going to finish things up. This is the Passball Show on the MTR Radio Network reminding you to tweet at me, John underscore P-L-E. That's John underscore P-I-E-L-L-I. Through any portion of this program, I promise I will mention, you know, I will give anybody credit for listening to the show, obviously. Um, if you want to mention, you know, F you or something like that, go for it. I'll say thank you. But, uh, you know, it's good to know that, that, you, that you're listening to the show from 10 to 12 on Saturday morning. And hopefully you come back and you listen again. And it obviously it shows for the diehard baseball fan. A couple good interviews we did today. Lenny DiNardo, Chasen Bradford uh, in the first hour. The show is going to be archived on MTR Media as well as replayed over throughout the week. So if you missed those interviews, definitely tune yourself in. And once again, thanks a lot for being part of the program. A couple historical aspects. A guy that I don't think gets enough credit was one of the better hitters of the late 1800s and the early part of the 1900s. His name was Napoleon Lajoie, and his, his last name is spelled L-A-J-O-I-E, and you pronounce it Lajoie. He was a guy who came up in the, he came up as a as a Philadelphia Philly, became a Philadelphia Athletic briefly, and had the best part of his career with the Cleveland Indians. Was one of the best hitters of the early part of the 1900s in the dead ball era. Had some ridiculous seasons. Won the Triple Crown in 1901, his only season with the Philadelphia Athletics, and hit 426. 14 home runs. Remember, this is the dead ball era. 125 runs batted in. 
scored 145 runs, 232 hits, 48 doubles, 14 triples, a 1.108 OPS, a 198 OPS plus, which of course is OPS adjusted to the ballpark that you're playing in, and 350 total bases. And you know how many times he struck out in 544 at-bats that season? Nine times. Take that season, my friends, and put that up against any other season in Major League Baseball history. And I'll tell you, you will have few seasons that you could say were hands down better than that. Lajoie unfortunately ran into a tough situation. He was he came up with the Philadelphia Phillies. And the Philadelphia Phillies of the National League, you know about them being around since 1890. The Philadelphia Quakers from 1883 to 1889. He was one of the better players on that team. The American League comes to fruition for the 19-1 season. And a lot of players were jumping to the American League because of pay. Guys like Connie Mack, you know, other other owners out there had a little more money, a little more capital that they put into the development of this new league. And it, Connie Mack offered Napoleon Lajoie more money. Guaranteed contract for a couple of years, something that was outlawed with the reserve clause within the next couple of years. So Lajoie takes the money, stays in Philadelphia, but is now an American League Philadelphia Athletic. Has that great season. By the time that season is done, there's so much stuff going on in cities that are disgusted over the fact that these players are jumping from the National League, which was baseball's major league, and going to this new league called the American League. And they were disgusted with it. So the city of Philadelphia, led by the Philadelphia Phillies, gets a law put in or gets an, an, an addendum, a court order, banning Napoleon Lajoie from playing games in the city of Philadelphia after the 19-1 season. Connie Mack, from what you know about Connie Mack, you hear that the guy was the ultimate gentleman. He, he would not allow their players to curse. He had their players uh, with proper etiquette when it came to acting, and that's the type of player that he wanted on his team. And being the good man he is, rather than hold on to Napoleon Lajoie, a great player, the best player in the American League in 19-1. He allows him to go sign with the Cleveland Indians. So the only games that Lajoie could not play were the road games in Philadelphia. And that sure beats all the home games in Philadelphia, right? And remember... There was, no, there was no baseball players union. There was nothing involved that could really back Lajoie in his best interest. So what he needed was Connie Mack to do the right thing. And he did. He allowed him to go to the Cleveland Indians. And that's where his Hall of Fame career continued. Did a phenomenal, phenomenal job. And not only that, but what I find is, is great about things that happened back then. Remember the Brooklyn Dodge Bridegrooms became the Brooklyn Robins because of manager Wilmer Robinson and his run. The Cleveland team, which was known prior to Lajaway joining them as the Cleveland Broncos, became the Cleveland Naps. 
when he joined the team in 1903. I'm sorry, 1902. In 1903, they became the Cleveland Naps. And, of course, he became the player manager from 1905 to 1909, um, was, was involved in 1910 after he was done managing in a historic pennant race with the Detroit Tigers' Ty Cobb, a guy who was not liked at all by his fellow, fellow teammates, teams in the league. And, and you could say that Ty Cobb, though he was a great ball player, that maybe Jordani Valdespin is like the Ty Cobb of then as far as just the way he was treated and in a way that he was liked by his teammates and other other players in the league. Obviously, Jordani Valdespin will never get close to what Ty Cobb did as a player. And I said before, outside of Ted Williams, my favorite player in baseball history was Ty Cobb. Jordani Valdespin will never be close to that. But as far as the way he was treated and liked when it came to other players and people involved in baseball, he was what, what he was. But Napoleon Lajouet ends up, uh, of course, by because of the manager and the team uh, that he was playing, the St. Louis Browns, a team that well over 100 losses, manager Jack O'Connor says, listen, I'm going to have my third baseman play back. And, uh, yeah, we're going to try to get you out. But, yeah, feel free to lay down as many bunch singles as you want. And Lajouet ends up winning the batting title by 1.384 to 383 over Cobb. Major League Baseball recognized what happened and actually gives them both a share for the batting title. But Lajouet was a phenomenal, phenomenal player. Came back to the Philadelphia Athletics in the 1915 season at age 40. Right after he got his 3,000th hit, he got his 3,000th hit with the Cleveland Indians with, uh, you know, and finished that season with 3,001 hits. His average fell a little bit. And, uh, you know, the, the, the Indians thought that he was kind of done. Connie Mack brings him back. He finishes his career there. But a phenomenal, phenomenal player. Doesn't get enough credit for what he was. One of the best players in the dead ball era. And that's Napoleon Lajoie. Another thing on a historical aspect, I got into this. We talked about a pitcher by the name of Fred Tony, And what Fred Tony was able to do is probably come up and probably involve himself in two of the greatest no-hitters ever in baseball history. One of them happened in the major leagues with the Cincinnati Reds, and the other one happened in the minor leagues. But the bottom line is both feats have never been done before. Fred Tony in 1917 was part of the only nine-inning double no-hitter in baseball history. While pitching for the Reds, he threw nine innings of hitless ball against the Chicago Cubs. Unfortunately, Cubs starter Hippo Vaughn did the same thing through nine innings. But Vaughn went out there for the 10th, gave up a run on two hits, ending his no-hit bid. Tony came out there, finished off the Cubs in the bottom of the 10th to preserve it. In the history of Major League Baseball, Tony is only one of three pitchers to throw a no-hitter for more than nine, for, for more than nine innings. Harvey Haddock's pitched 12 innings of perfect ball in a game in 1959. And Pedro Martinez threw a perfect game through nine innings in 1995. Unfortunately, both of the other pitchers eventually gave up a hit. Something Tony did not do. He threw a hitless 10th inning. So his hitless 10th inning was 
the only time in baseball history that a pitcher has pitched a no-hitter for more than nine innings and completed it with no hits given up. But that wasn't the best of what Fred Tony did. Now, Fred Tony pitched from 1911 to 1923, pitched for the Cubs, the Reds, the Giants, and the Cardinals. He pitched for the Giants in the 1921 World Series when they beat the Yankees for their second World Series championship. He finished his career at 139 and 102 record of 269 ERA. Very respectable. But in 1921, he has an ERA of a 23.63 in his two starts in the World Series. Obviously didn't help the Giants beat the Yankees, but got him there. Going back a little further, in 1909, in the minor leagues, he's pitching for the Winchester Hustlers of the Bluegrass League against the Lexington Colts. Scoreless game through nine innings. Fred Tony completed nine innings of no hit ball, completed the 10th, completed the 11th, completed the 12th. I'll stop at the 12th because that's where Harvey Haddock stopped. 12 hitless innings for Fred Tony. The game is still scoreless. Scoreless 13th, 14th, 15th, and 16th. And then finally throws a hitless 17th. 17 no-hit innings for Fred Tony. I don't care if he's pitching in the minor leagues. This is one of the greatest feats you're ever going to see. So he throws 17 no-hit innings with just one walk, strikes out 19. The, the um, Winchester Hustlers end up getting a run on a squeeze play, walk off in a one nothing win in 17 innings. Fred Tony throws a 17-inning no-hitter, and that will never be beaten. A pitcher will never pitch 17 innings again, let alone without giving up a hit. So two amazing no-hit feats that involve Fred Tony, the pitcher, for the four National League teams and, of course, the minor leagues before that. I thought those were amazing, amazing feats and things that will not be topped off. Once again, it's John Pielli here, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network, finishing things up here. Of course, reminding you guys, you're listening to me on Saturday morning from Saturday mornings from 10 to 12. Uh, feel free to tweet at me. This is an interactive program. You're going to get a reply from me. Anything you got to say, at John underscore Pielli. Just remind me you're listening to the show. That's all. But uh, last thing is we're finishing things up here in the second hour. Uh, of course, there's been some issues going on with stuff with Major League Baseball umpires. And, you know, umpires are always part of the program because there's always weird things going on. And, you know, unfortunate thing happened in the uh, Astros-Angels game uh, last week. Astros manager Bo Porter went out to make a pitching change. And uh, Mike Sosha countered with a pinch hitter. After a pinch hitter was announced, Porter made another pitching change. That's something against the rules of Major, Major League Baseball. Rule 3.05B states that a pitcher inserted in a game must face at least one batter unless injury or illness prevents them from doing so. Now, Fielding Colbreth, who has been known as one of the better umpires in Major League Baseball, he's, he's done a couple World Series. And really, when you're ranking the umpires, he, he kind of is one of the, one of, one of the good guys. Uh, Jim Joyce in that same category. Remember what happened with him and the Armando Galarraga perfect game. So Fielding Colbreth uh, you know, allows the pitching change to take place in spite of Mike Sosha's uh, you know, argument and you know, him not being happy with it. And you know, it, it ends up being the wrong thing to do. 
Colbert ends up getting being suspended for two games. His suspension is made public. While I, I would rather not see Major League Baseball pick on a guy like Field and Colbert, who I think is one of the better umpires, I'm actually glad that this happened because this is a step in the right direction for Major League Baseball. This is a step that is allowing Major League Baseball to start to hold the umpires accountable for things that they're not doing right. Now, Field and Colbert made an honest mistake, a misinterpretation of a rule, which is understandable. It happens. But this hopefully leads to some of the stuff going on with other umpires. You know, the Angel Hernandez's of the world who are just not good umpires. And that, that was made pretty evident, not not being a first-time issue, but he's, he's been known to be a guy that's not going to take any crap. When he's wrong, he makes wrong calls and throws guys out of the game afterwards. And that's the worst thing you could do as an umpire. Let's be honest. You blow a call, and then you go out there and you throw more than one person out of the game for it. What does that make you? Uh, especially with instant replay and the slow-mo and everything going on with the, the ability to see what's really happening, it makes you an idiot. It really does. And hopefully umpires like that can be held accountable for mistakes that they're making. And especially these hotheads, a guy like Tom Hallion, who Dave, David Price is, 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 is unhappy, but he's not showing the umpire up at all. He's unhappy as he's walking off the mound. And Tom Hallion's going to go to the Tampa Bay Rays dugout and bait the guy. Ridiculous. Ridiculous. You know, you got guys like John Hirschbeck who are nowhere near Bryce Harper. Bryce Harper, unhappy about being struck out or called out on strikes. Does John Hirschbeck got to go over to him and get in his face and then throw him out of the game? Bob Davidson's the best example of it. Here's a guy that if he, if he was fired as an umpire, I wouldn't be any happier. The guy stinks. He makes mistakes, and he's got the hottest temper in the world that he just wants to throw people out of the game. People do not go out there to see Bob Davidson umpire. And people will be happy if he was not umpiring anymore. He does a terrible job. He's not even a good umpire. I even questioned some of his box call, ball calls. You know, he's known as balking Bob Davidson, the only guy that's going to go out there and make these calls. I question whether he's even getting right. Listen, I want to thank Lenny DiNardo. Uh, you know, major league pitcher. He's currently pitching with, uh, you know, in Lexington. I'm sorry, not Lexington. I was thinking about uh, Fred Tony there in Lancaster, Pennsylvania for the Barnstormers. He's actually pitching tonight. Wish him the best of luck. Chase and Bradford, uh, Mets, uh, St. Lucie, high A level pitcher. Thank him for being part of the program. This is the Passball Show right here on the MTR Radio Network. As usual, I thank you guys for being part of the program. Hopefully, you guys tune in next week. Like I said, any issues, uh, tweet me at John underscore Pielli. Thanks.